Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. This is the Tom Hartman Program. And greetings, my friends, patriots, lovers of democracy, truth, and justice, believers in peace, freedom, and the American way. Liz Winstead is going to drop by. She's got a new organization. The Supreme Court's going to be hearing the Mississippi abortion case on December 1st. This is going to be fascinating. This not only threatens abortion, but also the right to birth control, marriage, and even sex. She'll tell you all about that. And also in this hour, I want to get into this new report about Facebook running a slave trading website. This is pretty mind-boggling. So we'll get into all that stuff. But right now, Jennifer Stefano is on the line with us, the Republican strategist, vice president of the Commonwealth Foundation, fellow with the Independent Women's Forum. Commonwealthfoundation.org is the website. Jennifer's Twitter handle is Jennifer Stefano, S-T-E-F-A-N-O, spelled pretty much just like it sounds. And uh, Jennifer, uh, inflation, are, are Republicans going to use this monster of inflation to scare people away from the Build Back Better plan? Is that, is that the, the scheme here? Well, no, Joe Biden and the Democrats are already doing it admirably. I mean, I can't imagine what they could do to be more unpopular other than take puppies out onto the East Lawn and start shooting them. This is not what the uh, they, American- They're opposed to guns. Not what they want. <laughs> okay, so I don't get this, Jennifer. I'm, maybe I'm missing something here. Maybe I'm dense. Um, my understanding is that inflation is caused by one of two things, either a shortage of goods, uh, as we saw with the Arab oil embargo back in the 70s, or a reduction in the value of the currency, as we saw when Nixon in 1971 uh, devalued the U.S. currency by 11 percent, and then the next year devalued it by 10 percent relative to the pound and the German mark and whatnot. And that uh, 21 percent devaluation over a two-year period led to, over about a decade following that, about 20 percent inflation. Um, how does government spending cause inflation? I've never, I've never seen that in any economics textbook. Sure, you have. No, um, I that's how you value the dollar. You flood the market with more of them. Since Joe Biden took office, there has been five trillion government dollars thrown into the economy. That hype, that devalues. The dollar at the same time, the government paid people to stay home and not work. And that's why we have a massive shortage. It's why there's um, problems at our ports and problems anywhere you go in America. It puts an enormous burden on the American worker in two ways. Number one, for those still left standing, it's just stressful day in and day out. And number two, now our dollars, when we go to buy milk, when we go to buy gas, when we go to heat our homes this winter, all being driven up by bad government policies under President, Obi- President Biden and the Democrats. It's very problematic. Yeah, so, so you, what you're saying is that when the federal government spends money, that causes inflation because it's dollars going into the, into the system. But those dollars are also coming out of the system. The government, in order to spend that money, has to either borrow it or, or tax it. I mean, it's, it, it, this is not the Fed. The federal spending is not... Fed, the Fed is what in, you know, creates or, or destroys uh, our currency, our, our money. The Fed determines the, you know, the number of dollars in circulation. Federal, federal spending has absolutely nothing to do with that. This is, a, this is a nonsense argument, Jennifer. No, it's not a nonsense argument. If we can continue to look at the trajectory of what's happening, and it hurts the American worker. If you look so, at no, the No, money- wait a second. Where, where are these dollars being invented? I mean, I, I will give you that the Fed, you know, in, in an effort to solve the, the, the Bush crash in 2008, 
flooded the flooded the mar you know the the, the world with dollars. Uh, I think it was like 23 trillion or something like that. They pulled back an awful lot of that, but that had to be inflationary. And I'll give you that right now we've got a goods shortage because we've got this giant traffic jam between us and China, in part because China shut down, you know, the Shanghai and one, uh, Weibo or whatever, the, the, the two largest ports for about a month because they had COVID over there. Plus, we are recovering from COVID, and so there's this explosion in demand for goods. I, you know, I get all that, and those things will cause inflation, and you're right, inflation's real. But it, th it has absolutely nothing to do with federal spending. Federal spending does not cause inflation. I, no, no rational economist has ever proposed that. So and when you're suggesting that when the Republicans did it, it was the cause of inflation, but when the Democrats no. do it, it's... No, I'm saying that when the, when the federal government spends money, that's money going out, and if the money only went out... And, and, you know, if the, if the federal government invented a trillion new dollars and threw them out into the marketplace, yeah, you might have a one hundredth of one percent inflation as a consequence of that, because it's that, that would be about that share of the number of dollars in circulation around the planet. But the fact of the matter is, if the government spends a trillion dollars, they, they have to either borrow that trillion dollars or they have to raise it in taxes, which makes it a, a closed loop. It's not they're not it's not just magic money falling out of the sky. Sure it is. It's magic money flowing out of the sky that the That's coming from somewhere. Endless stimulus plans, and they put out money not for value. They were not buying goods. They were not buying services. The federal government put money into the economy, just handed it willy-nilly to the states. They could do whatever they wanted. For half the states, the money's sitting in reserve funds that are already flush with cash for education and other things. Which has no nothing idea. to do with inflation. Hyper, it is high. At the same time, when you pay people not to work, there is money in the economy that did not. Jennifer, you money. have a bunch of Republican states that cut off the $300 extra benefit back in June when it actually expired at the end of October. In none of those states, not one, I defy you to name one state where they saw as a result of cutting off benefits to people an increase in employment. And in fact, when you look at the states that have the highest rate of unemployed people right now who have voluntarily quit, there are 10 states that constitute the, the, the well over 80% of all the people who quit their jobs in the United States. Those 10 states are Alabama, Arkansas, Florida, Georgia, Kentucky, Louisiana, Mississippi, Oklahoma, South Carolina, and Tennessee. What do those 10 states have in common? They have the highest rates of COVID infection in the nation, and they're all right to work for less states. So there's basically no union. So you've got a bunch of people who've got crappy minimum wage jobs in the middle of, of the worst pandemic in the country. Actually, in all of those states, you've got a pandemic that's worse than any other developed country in the world. And those people are saying, no, I don't want to go to the workplace. But again, that, you know, this has, you know, nothing to do with government spending. And it's certainly, you know, we're not paying people not to work. You take away those benefits, people are not going back to work. They're afraid of dying. No, Sean. People, these are states that also have the highest levels of poverty and that there's enormous government program and government cash flow into them and still fails to solve the problem and address it. You know, in America, we can address and, and, and take care of material poverty, but what you cannot address and cannot change is what really is needed. And I think the continuing of the government playing the role that private philanthropy used to do is part of this enormous problem. Now, we could debate that is a totally separate issue, and we could go on ad infinitum on that. So but going back... So why, why is it, Jennifer, that these 10 Republican-controlled states, as you said, they're the poorest states in the union, why is it that the Republican-controlled states tend to be in poverty and have, you know, real crises with obesity and heart disease and all kinds of, you know, health problems, and the democratically-controlled states are doing really well, and they don't have these poverty problems and they're and they're not having the problem of people quitting their jobs why would that so be let me a question on you why is it in the states where there are the largest democrat loving big government programs like medicaid are people not getting healthier why do you continue to say they are that government Healthcare is so good for all of us. I don't see any of the northern left liberal progressives taking Medicaid, but instead you foist it on to everybody else and say it's a good thing, and then you want to expand it to all the other states. I so don't understand what you're saying, Jennifer. The, you've got 12 states that have not expanded Medicaid. 12 states. All, every single one of them is controlled by Republicans. Every single one of them is a former slave state. And those are the states where you've got the deepest poverty in the United States. Well, yes, and why aren't the big Democrat pro programs working there? I'd like to reverse the question. Because they're not we working never there because the Republicans are blocking why? them. 
that you want, okay, we have Medicaid in these states, and you just made a great point, that people aren't healthy there, that they have some of the worst health outcomes of anyone, which is, by the way, what you see even in northern states for people on government-run health care, i.e. Medicaid. So why, Tom, why aren't you addressing the fact that these programs don't work for people, that they hurt people, and that people are getting healthier and better? They're Medicaid has been... Medicaid has been demonstrated to help people. When, when states expand Medicaid, they get better health outcomes. That's, that's not in dispute. This is absolutely, on Medicaid, people get worse health outcomes than even those without insurance. And that was studies done pre-Obamacare. Oh, come on. That, that is so counterintuitive. You're telling, you're telling me that when you tell people that they can't have access to health care unless they can come up with thousands and thousands of dollars, which they don't have, that they're going to have a better outcome, a health outcome, than when they have access to health care because they have Medicaid. Seriously? I encourage you to look at the studies done in the pre-Obamacare era of the differential in health outcomes between individuals who had no insurance and individuals on Medicaid. And then I would like you to answer, because I still search for this myself, why? These big government programs do not work. I don't want to hurt people. I don't think Democrats want to hurt people. I don't think Republicans want to hurt people. I think we want solutions. To Send me the study, of- Jennifer, and we can discuss it, you know, the next time around, because I don't know what you're talking about. This makes no sense. But, um, okay. Jennifer, thank you for dropping by today. I, I, I appreciate it. Uh, Jennifer Stefano, uh, Republican strategist, vice president of the Commonwealth Foundation, commonwealthfoundation.org. Jennifer Stefano on Twitter. Jennifer, thank you. Thank you, sir. So uh, do you think that uh, Medicaid is causing health problems? Just to recap, I'm a little baffled here. (laughs) First of all, inflation is caused by reducing the value of the dollar or there being a shortage of goods, which drives up their price. And I don't see how either of those have anything to do with government spending. Uh, You could actually build a case that some small part of the inflation that we're experiencing right now is the result of increased demand for goods, which everybody acknowledges, Uh, in part because Christmas is coming, but mostly because, you know, for a year we kind of lived like moles in our mole holes. Um, And now people are starting to get out and they're starting to buy things and stuff like that. Um, so you could say that giving people unemployment benefits has allowed them to continue buying things, which keeps demand high, which may have something to do with inflation, but government spending in and of itself, that makes no sense. That just makes no sense at all to me. Anyhow, let's, uh, Matt in Augusta, Georgia, watching us on YouTube. Hey, Matt, what's on your mind? Yes, um, I just want to say that, you know, I'm on disability and I'm on Medicaid mm-hmm. and it needs to be expanded. I need to go to the dentist and I need new glasses, but I get all the health care that I need. And for her to sit there and sarcastically say, uh, giving people health care or whatever she said, it's ridiculous. Yeah. And they need to be called what they are. They're fascist. Well, I'm not. I'm not sure Jennifer is a fascist. Not her. But I, I'm sorry. I, don't <laughs> I think I think her theology is wrong. I mean, this this belief that somehow uh, giving people access to health care is going to cause worse health outcomes. Just, I mean, I you know maybe some right wing think tank came up with a study, but this makes no sense to me, Matt. No, it doesn't. And you live and in a state I, in Georgia. Georgia has not expanded Medicaid, right? You had to uh, apply for disability benefits in order to have access to it. Am I correct? Yes. Yeah. And which is which know, is grim. I mean, it should be available to anybody who's who's, uh, you know, making under whatever the threshold, the Obamacare threshold is. I think it's around 14, 15,000 bucks a year. Yeah. Well, I think in one of your books, you wrote about how giving health care to people really is rooted in racism. Yeah. You know? Yeah. That's my new book on health care. The opposition to giving health care to people was rooted in racism. And that goes back to Frederick Hoffman's theory back. He published it in 1896 in his book race traits and tendencies of the American Negro, in which he said that if we just deprived black people of health care, that because they were genetically inferior, the entire race would die out and that would solve the solve the race problem in America. That's why I say, you know, these 12 states that have not expanded Medicaid are all former slave states. I think that, you know, this the same thing is happening. 
Right. But it's different from state to state. And I right. lived out in Oregon, and I had to apply for that. Now I'm in South Carolina. I have to get on. I just got here, so I have to get on there. Matt, thanks you. Thanks for testifying. I appreciate it. Thank you for the call, and thanks for watching us on YouTube. I got to tell you about Facebook right after this, and then I'll pick up your phone call. Stick around. I wanted to add one other thing to this. This uh, Amy Vanderpool flagged this for me. I mean, it's not unique to her reporting. It's been out there, but she did a really good job with her Shiro newsletter, S-H-E-R-O. In uh, summarizing it, her headline is, Apple knew about human trafficking on Facebook. And what this is about is that, you know, two years ago, Apple, not Facebook, Apple discovered that there were slave markets operating on Facebook. Actual, hey, you want to buy a person? Markets of enslaved, mostly women, mostly Asian women, mostly from the Philippines and, and countries in that region, and almost exclusively being sold in Saudi Arabia and Egypt. Uh, 60% of the offending material came from Saudi Arabia, a quarter of it came from Egypt. Where these were people who were buying and selling enslaved human beings. And Apple saw this two years ago and said to Facebook, if you don't clean this up, we're going to take your app out of our app store. So people who use Apple iPhones and, you know, will no longer be able to access, easily access Facebook on their, on their phones. Facebook had an internal memo. This is part, part of the stuff that's coming out of the Facebook page, papers. They, they had an internal memo that said, you know, this will really hurt Facebook. There's a lot of people who are using Facebook on Apple devices. In fact, they said, quote, removing our applications from Apple platforms would have had potentially severe consequences to the business. So what did Facebook do? They went in and they found what Apple had found and they closed 1,000 accounts and said, problem solved. Well, you know, the problem wasn't solved. The slave markets are still there. They were still there last week. And those thousand accounts that they closed, they just popped right back up under a different name someplace else. But Apple said, okay, cool, thank you very much, we're, we're good. And Facebook was like, we got this under control, everything's cool here. I think that, you know, we're starting to see now, in, in fact, this uh, uh, Amy Vanderpool's newsletter, she says, a quick search for maids. Now, this is how, they're, these, how, this is how these women are bought and sold. They're bought and sold as domestic help, like as if it's a help wanted ad for a maid, you know, like the merry maids come to your house, you know, once a week and clean your house uh, so you don't have to do the deep cleaning kind of thing. So they advertise it as maid services, M-A-I-D, and, but, but they're actually, if you look at the price and you look at what's going on, they're actually not selling the service of the maids, they're selling the maids themselves. And uh, CNN conducted a search just last week using the terms listed in Facebook's internal research on human trafficking and discovered active Instagram accounts purporting to offer domestic workers for sale were still posted and viable on the site. Um, one Facebook internal leaked document said, in our investigation, domestic workers frequently complained to their recruitment agencies of being locked in their homes, starved, forced to expand their contracts indefinitely, being unpaid, and repeatedly sold to other employers without their consent. Yes, we are talking about human trafficking here. In fact, Facebook even went so far as to create an acronym to describe this issue of human trafficking. They call it HEX, H-E-X, or, you know, it's, it's the acronym for Human Exploitation. So they labeled the problem, and they kicked a 1,000 uh, accounts off their platform and said, that, that's it, everything's good. I'm wondering how long it's going to be before the employees at Facebook start uh, engaging in some kind of walkout or something. I, this, this is, these revelations are just grim. You know, profits over humanity, profits over everything. Running a slave trade site? Really? Do you think Medicaid causes people to get sicker? And do you think government spending causes inflation? You're listening to Tom Hartman.
Quick math, the less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of truth. And with NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessible from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. Now through April 15th, NetSuite is offering a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program. Just head over to netsuite.com slash Hartman with two N's. netsuite.com slash Hartman. That's netsuite.com slash Hartman. Professional welder Shayna Ford used VR training developed by ForgeFX to hone her skills as a welder. The more time that you spend practicing it, that's what separates a good welder from a great welder. VR training can help students like Shayna repeatedly practice specific skills. Virtual reality definitely helps because the more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Explore more stories like Shayna's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. And let me pick up your phone calls. Frank in Thompson Falls, Montana. Hey, Frank, what's on your mind? Well, I'd just like to respond to that uh, Republican representative that you just had on. I live in one of the poorest counties in the nation in Montana, and you would think and with her thought process we'd be one of the healthiest. Well, we have the one of the lowest vaccination rates in the country, and uh, people aren't that healthy here. And as far as Medicare, I was involved with a major motorcycle accident. cost me $40,000 for 18 hours in the hospital, but at least 80% of that was paid for. Yeah, with Medicare or Medicaid. Yeah. Or one or the other. Right. Yeah. And then on the Advantage thing, I developed cancer, so I had to get blood draws. My Advantage plan said I was in network. I got the blood draws, and 14 months later, they came back and said, no, you weren't, and you owe us $1,700. Oh, that's that's because you made the mistake of signing up for Medicare Advantage. Right. No, well, no, I'm no, no longer friend. on that. Yeah, I'm well, no good. longer on that, but uh, it's just crazy that they can think that somebody doesn't have Medicare is going to be better for them as an individual. Yeah, I think so, too. Frank, thank you for the call. Thank you for your testimony. Eric in Clearwater, Florida. Hey, Eric, what's on your mind today? Tom, thank you for taking my call. And, uh, you know, when you brought her on, that guest, I was going to turn the channel, right? Because I was like, all right, more lies. So I said, you know what? Let me, let me just listen to it. Sure enough, Tom, and, and I appreciate the fact that you're well-read. I like to consider myself well-read, right? But, and, and, but, but that information that that you countered with, right, was was really good. And she had nothing to come back with. She kept changing the subject. It's just amazing. But, you know, Tom, here's what I wanted to point out. People that don't know the facts will believe her. Oh, this is a, this is a sales pitch that the Republicans started running in 1980. This is part of Reagan's pitch because we had right. a big inflation problem. You know, when Reagan came into his first year in office, the inflation right. rate was over 8%. And it's, right. you know, it hurt Jimmy Carter terribly. And Reagan came out and said, yeah. oh, inflation is caused by government spending. We have to, we have to cut back on welfare <laughs> programs. And yeah. it's like, it makes no friggin' sense. Every dollar right. the government spends, it right. either borrows or it taxes. It doesn't create money out of thin yeah. air. The Fed does that. Not the Treasury yeah. Department. Um, but anyhow. Yeah. So to you, I want to thank you. You know, thank you for, for countering her lies. You know? Yeah, well, I wouldn't call them lies. I would call them uh, radical right. misinformation. Okay. <laughs> Republican okay. mythology. Right. But yeah, thank you. Okay. Yeah, I got it. Thank okay, you. thanks. Thanks a lot, Eric. Good to hear from you. And thanks for listening to us on SiriusXM. Kurt in Akron, Ohio. Hey, Kurt, what's on your mind today? Hey, Tom. Good afternoon here in Akron. Good morning to you in Portland. I've worked in Medicaid in the state of Ohio for, it'll be 20 years on January 14th. Has Ohio expanded so, Medicaid? John Kasich did expand it back in 2014 right. when the Affordable Care Act went into effect. Okay. 
I couldn't even tell you how many people over 20 years' time have called me or their families have called me and said, thank you so much. Thank you so much for getting me on Medicaid because I'm able to go to the doctor. I'm able to do this. I'm able to do that. Just recently, I recently I've had a rash of getting people approved for Medicaid by applying at 11 in the morning and getting them approved by 2 in the afternoon the next day wow. in the state of Ohio while they're still here in the hospital because I do see the people in the hospital mm-hmm. bedside. So you get to see them face to face. So this is your you job. Get- you're, you're, uh, you're, you sign up people for a living. Yes, I do. I'm a wow. Medicaid eligibility specialist. Wow. Um, Good on and, you. you know, I've been able to give people their Medicaid billing numbers while they're still laying in the hospital bed. Mm-hmm. And just the sheer stress that comes off their shoulders, you can just see it in their face. Knowing that they're not going to walk out of the hospital with a $30,000 bill attached to their leg like a ball and chain. Well, you want to know something interesting, Tom? The hospital that I'm associated with that I work, because I don't work for the state, I work for a private company who offers our services free of charge to self-pay patients in the Mm -hmm. hospital. Mm -hmm. Um, How we get paid is we get paid through Medicaid reimbursement Mm -hmm. after Medicaid pays the hospital. Um, When I started 20 years ago, to go to an ICU room just for the room in 2002 Mm -hmm. was $1,500 a day. Now, in 2021, it's $15,000 a day. I have people who are racking up half-million-dollar hospital bills that I still need to talk to but can't because they're on life support or they just mentally cannot talk at this point. Because of COVID, you mean? And Well, not necessarily COVID, you know, auto accidents, um, illness, COVID, stuff like that, all that stuff. But I do not see the COVID patients face-to-face. Call them on the phone, obviously. But just the families. I've had families call me and say, you know, my dad died or my mom died or or my child died. But because you took the time to care, you took the time to listen to the situation, you did what you had to do and you got it done, we're so grateful for that because now, one, they can rest in peace, and two, we don't have to be strapped with that burden of trying to figure out how to get these hospital bills paid or the hospital having to write it off to the HCAP, the Care Assurance Program, or the Charity Program because some people may not be able to qualify for Medicaid based on the 138% poverty level. Right. Oh, I get it. Kurt, God bless you. <laughs> I mean, you're doing, you're doing God's work. Thank you so much for the call, and thanks for sharing your experience with us. I appreciate it. Steve in Lake Elsinore, California. Hey, Steve, what's on your mind today? I'd just like to add my testimony to your discussion about health care. You mm-hmm. know, I think sometimes we forget what health care is about, which is keeping people alive and giving them their lives back. I unfortunately inherited from my father bad hips and bad heart. He had atrial fibrillation, and he had bad hips and had dysplasia. When I got into my early 50s, my hip started going out, but I didn't have insurance. So I endured about 10 years of excruciating pain, hopefully waiting for my uh, Medicare to kick in. In the meantime, I developed atrial fibrillation, which is, uh, again, yeah, very, is. Uh, genetically common. Yeah. And uh, my dad died of a, actually ended up with dementia and a stroke from it, uh, so it, yeah. it really is very dangerous. Long story short, when the Affordable Care Act came along, I was able to schedule through Kaiser Permanente, and I'd like to give a good, good pitch for Kaiser Permanente. They give you my hips, and they fix my heart, and today I can walk, and I'm alive because that's, of the Affordable Care Act. That's wonderful. That's, that's a great testimony. Steve, thank you very much for sharing that with us, and thanks for listening to KPFK. It's great to hear from you. Warren in Kirkland, Washington. Hey, Warren. Hey, Tom. I think I answer. I can answer your question on how uh, Medicaid creates more sick people. Okay. All right. So basically, it's just ones and zeros and a tally. So if you get on Medicaid and you go see the doctor, I just created one sick person. Oh. And so it's so who, that's how it creates more. Yeah, that makes sense. So <laughs> if you have more people who have health insurance, you've got more people who are going to go to the doctor. If you got more people going to the doctor, you could say that you can measure there's more sickness. That's correct. It's that simple. <laughs> Bingo, Warren. 
Bingo. Holy cow. Right. How, how did and, I miss uh, that? How did I miss that? That's brilliant. <laughs> I, I know. I, I know. And, hey, and I just went and got a colonoscopy yesterday, so please, everyone, if you uh, are above 50 or around 50, please go see the doctor and get your colonoscopy and uh, make yeah. yourself well. Yeah, there you go. I'm, I'm with you. Uh, Warren, thank you. Thanks All for the call. Right. Andrew in uh, Nassau County, New York. Hey, Andrew, what's up? Oh, hi. Thanks for taking my call, Mr. Hartman. Sure. Just a little notice. Our bastion of liberalism, New York City, is now converting its Medicare retirees to Medicare Advantage. Oh, you're kidding. Nope. It's Who got the kickback January. on that one? I don't know, but Bill de Blasio, the great liberal, signed off on it. And uh, Is there any blowback? Actually, is there, are, are there are people protesting? I don't know. Uh, actually, the next mayor, probably, Eric Adams, who is the Democratic nominee for mayor, right. who's also a retiree, asked them to extend the period. Well, that's interesting. This, so, when, by the way, a, when, does, when, when does the election happen? And is it in November and then he takes office in January? Yeah, yeah. November, okay. exactly. But uh, the opt out, there's a, this is an opt-out thing. Mm -hmm. you, you can opt-out. You don't have to opt-in. Theoretically, we did get notice. There's a letter that I didn't receive. I got a little postcard filled with fine print that right. told us about yeah. it. Well, that's how Medicare Advantage works. It's all about the fine print. <laughs> Absolutely. But uh, there was nothing you had to get online and get, in, get to the right URL in order to uh, discover exactly what was happening. Right. Anyway, you have to opt out, and there's a form you fill out online or use some other method like emailing or writing a letter, mm -hmm. and you don't find out if you have successfully opted out until after the period for opting out has ended. Oh, wow. Yep. It sounds like they really set you guys up badly. Um, Absolutely. That's incredible. And, and you're, you find yourself in that situation, Andrew. Yeah, well, I've, I've tried to opt out. I've used three different methods. I filled out the online form. I sent an email. I wrote a letter. Uh, I've done everything but storm the office and management budget. How about calling to, the mayor's uh, office? Well, he's the one who signed off on this. Yeah. And I think uh, a lot of some people have. But the, the point is you can opt out, but you have to opt out. And you know that if it's opt out, very few people are actually going to opt out. Oh, yeah. No, it's, it's if it's an automatic enrollment, you're going to have, yeah, you're absolutely right. Very few people are going to jump through all the hoops you did. Andrew, uh, good luck. Keep us up to date, okay? A couple of news stories I wanted to share with you. This absolutely extraordinary story. Brittany Poulaw, this seems to happen so far almost exclusively to black women. I've got you know several examples here. Every single one of them is an African-American woman. She was 17 weeks pregnant, which is pretty substantial. You know, it's, it's moving along in the pregnancy. And she had a miscarriage. She shows up at the hospital. They help her through the miscarriage. They do a autopsy on the dead child that came out of her. And what they found was that it had a congenital abnormality. This is why it this is why she miscarried. It had what's called placental abruption. Now, I'm not a physician, but I, I think that kind of explains itself. Something wrong with the placenta, you know, being attached to the to the wall of the, of the uh, uterus. And it also had chlorioamnionitis. I'm sure I'm mispronouncing that, but that sounds to me like it has something to do with the amniotic fluid that, you know, that surrounds the baby. But basically, obviously, this baby miscarried because it had these congenital malformant abnormalities. But here's the thing. During her pregnancy, Brittany Poulaw had taken some drugs. And when they drew blood from this miscarried child, what they found was methamphetamine. Not toxic levels, not enough to cause an abortion, not enough to cause a miscarriage, but they prosecuted her under this law for losing her baby. Uh, and, she, and she's looking at serious prison time. I mean, 20-year-old Brittany Poulaw was sentenced to four years in prison after being convicted of first-degree manslaughter. Manslaughter. 
yes, using drugs when you're pregnant is stupid, wrong, and against the law, but that's not what caused this miscarriage. And everybody's clear on that. But these laws are drawn in such a way that, you know, it's like the, the old drug laws. Like, you know, you can use them against people that you just, well, as, as, as John Ehrlichman told a, a reporter back 20 years ago, you know, we use the drug laws in the Nixon administration specifically to target the African-American civil rights community and the, the hippies who are anti-war. He said, you can't, you can't uh, make it illegal to be black or to be a hippie but, or against the war, but we could use these drug laws to disrupt their communities. That was his phrase. And Pula is just the most recent woman to face prosecution over pregnancy laws. Another, another uh, black woman, Chelsea Cheyenne Becker, faced first-degree murder charges following a stillbirth. That, now, in that case, there was sort of a happy ending, and the judge dismissed the case. But can you imagine losing a child and then being accused of murder and having to hire lawyers and go through all that kind of stuff? And then in 2019, Marsha Jones was charged with manslaughter in Alabama for having a miscarriage after she was shot. What happened was she got into an argument with a neighbor. The neighbor pulled out a gun and shot her in the foot. The shot to the foot apparently provoked her body to go into shock or whatever, and that led to the miscarriage. And so they prosecuted her on the premise that she was the one who started the argument. And because she started the argument, the argument led to the other woman pulling out a gun. The, the woman shoots her in the foot. The foot injury leads to the that therefore she should go to prison. This, and, she, you know, they were saying that she violated the state's uh, fetal personhood law. You endangered a person. This is just the beginning. And finally, the, the, the last little, <laughs> does it, this is a crazy alert. This is a full out crazy alert I'm going to share with you. The queen, the queen of England, who is, uh, as I recall, 99 years old, has been advised by her physician to give up her evening martini. <laughs> There's, they're putting pressure on the, no more drink after dinner. And then a family friend, uh, and this is, I mean, this is all ahead of next June, she turns 100, right? The family friend said, the queen has been told to give up her evening drink, which is usually a martini. It's not really a big deal for her. She's not a big drinker, but it seems a trifle unfair at this stage in her life that she's having to give up one of her very few pleasures. Yeah, I'm with you on that. If you make it to 99, you should be entitled to a martini. It's the Tom Hartman program. Telling the truth, the multinational corporations, especially those who are buying our politicians, we'd really rather you didn't know all about it. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Our book in the Tom Hartman Book Club today is Our Class by Chris Hedges, the subtitle Trauma and Transformation in an American Prison. In prison, there's an unwritten code with inviolate rules. Do not be a snitch ratting out other prisoners to prison administrators. Do not ask other prisoners personal questions, especially about why they're incarcerated. Do not touch another prisoner. And if you bump into someone by accident, Apologize profusely unless you want to fight. Stay away from brawls. Mind your own business. Do your time. Keep your promises. Do not lie. Do not steal from other prisoners. Do not sell favors. Pay your debts. Do not be weak. Do not show emotion. Do not whine or complain. Never trust or become friendly with guards. Stand up for those in your tribe, usually defined by race, gang affiliation, or religion. When someone hurts or murders a family member or a friend, exact revenge. When insulted or attacked, fight back even if it is certain you will lose. If you don't defend yourself, you'll be turned out, slang for being turned into a woman, in quotes, and become the, quote, property of a man who will protect you in exchange for service as a slave. Service that includes sexual favors, cleaning his cell, and cooking meals in his cell from food bought at the commissary. While these predators, or booty bandits, are looked at with disdain, they nevertheless have an established place in prison culture, especially among men doing a lot of time. The code, at its core, is about loyalty and solidarity. 
It is this loyalty and solidarity that prison administrators must crush to maintain control. This is why prison authorities tolerate booty bandits, bullies, and extortionists who dehumanize other prisoners, along with cultivating informants or rats to sow mistrust within the prison population. A unified prison population is, by its very nature, a threat to the power of the ruling minority. Prisons are modern-day plantations. They are not concerned any more than plantations were with rehabilitation and self-empowerment. They exploit cheap or unpaid prison labor to maintain the institution and toil in state-run industries or private corporations that run prison sweatshops. The manuals written for slaveholders in the antebellum South on the management of slaves, as, Kev Kevin, as Kenneth Stamp details in his 1956 book on the organization of slavery, that peculiar institution, differ little from the manuals and tactics used by prison administrators. Strict discipline, the fostering of prejudices, hierarchies of social status, and biases to keep captives divided. Unconditional and humiliating submission to authority to crush pride and self-confidence. The constant implanting within the bonded population of a sense of personal inferiority and worthlessness through verbal abuse and degrading rituals, including forcing captives to be naked, keeps them broken and passive. The isolation of leaders or potential leaders in the general population, instilling fear and helplessness into the captive population through periodic and often capricious demonstrations of the master's overwhelming power to remind the captives of their powerlessness. Constant indoctrination of the captives, often through religious teaching and educational programs, so that they invest themselves in their assigned work and adopt the master's code of good behavior. Destroy their capacity to form personal independent convictions. Reward those who betray fellow captives and exemplify the abject subservience that marks the model prisoner as well as the model slave. Snitches are especially despised. They are usually the first to be attacked and often killed in prison uprisings. Prisoners, for example, will only give slightly different stories to those suspected of being snitches. They'll tell one suspected snitch they're buying shanks along the wall by the weight pile, while it they'll tell another that they're burying shanks by the water fountain, and tell yet another that they're securing shanks under a table in the mess hall. And they wait to see which place the correction officers search, which usually exposes the snitch. In the Trenton prison, the highest paid prisoners for many years were known as old Mr. Charlie, who shined the guard's boots. He made $150 a month, more than five times what the average prisoner earned. The prisoners called him the boot black N-word. The door of his cell was often left open. He roamed the halls while the rest of the prisoners were locked in their cages. He reported on any illegal activity he saw or heard about to the guards. He was the broken and abject figure that every prisoner was supposed to become. While old Mr. Charlie was fated by the prison administration, Members of the African National Ujama, the ANU, were being isolated in the management control unit, the MCU, in Trenton, where they remained for almost a decade. The ANU was a radical black nationalist group that taught black history and preached solidarity and resistance. The philosopher Hannah Arendt in The Origins of Totalitarianism highlighted the importance to all tyrannies of isolating a population to ensure its, quote, inability to act. The book, Our Class, Trauma and Transformation in an American Prison, by Chris Hedges. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Ophthalmologist Dr. Strauss has seen firsthand how the metaverse is helping surgeons practice the procedures to treat cataracts. Cataracts are the primary cause of avoidable blindness. He works with a virtual reality training platform developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International to help surgeons develop the muscle memory they need. The result? More confident, capable surgeons. And even more importantly, patients who can see. Explore more stories like Dr. Strauss's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. 
Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. Our old buddy Liz Winstead is out there taking names and kicking ass. The comedian and author Liz Free or Die, the uh, former co-creator and head writer of The Daily Show, reproductive rights activist, founder and chief ex- creative officer at the Abortion Access Front, aafront.org. Liz Winstead is the Twitter handle or Abortion Front. Uh, Liz, welcome back to the program. It's been a while. I see you're coming to Portland November 3rd and 4th. You're going to be at the Siren Theater in Portland. You're going to be in San Francisco on November 6th. You're, you're hitting the road? I'm hitting the road. You know, I'm I'm feeling a little bit trepidatious, I think, like most performers. It's like you really want to get out there, especially now, being somebody who talks about the world. It's kind of like I need to be in it. I need to talk to people. I think people need a catharsis. And, you know, when you have a whole... You know, you just set it up right and get people to come. You know, you proof of vax and wear a mask. And let's talk about all those people who deny science and, like, laugh about them. Yeah. You also have a new uh, program, a talk show that you're starting, Feminist Buzzkills. You're launching that next month or the month after next? I am. I'm, yeah, we're very excited about that. You know, Tom, it's been a series of, uh, you know, ever since I really started uh, Abortion Access Front and have been a reproductive rights activist for years, it always seems like the media will sideline it or talk about it when it becomes a Texas or a Mississippi or an Alabama. And so we decided to do a talk show that combined, you know, speaking truth to power using humor, bringing on facts, experts, abortion providers, activists, so that we can keep people informed on a weekly basis about just the profundity of these laws that are being passed because mm. it's happening with such frequency that it deserves its proper place in a media landscape. So we decided to give it one. Yeah, I'm with you. I got an email today that I would love to get your take on. This is from uh, the uh, Whole Women's Health Alliance, you know, which, which mm-hmm. runs some of the abortion I'm on clinics the, which in I'm Texas. on the board, by the way. Oh, cool. Okay. Well, their email says, uh, you know, we're working hard to create a world free of shame, stigma, and judgment. So there's a reason why we say we're pro-abortion. They note, uh, it's not uncommon for people to say I'm pro-choice, not pro-abortion. But then they say, as we navigate this tremendously fraught time for abortion access, We are asking you to stand with us and commit to being explicitly pro-abortion. Abortion Abortion isn't Mm -hmm. a dirty word. And then they go through this list. They say abortion is a human right. It helps people thrive. It's health care. It's radical act of self-care. It's normal. Abortion providers are heroes. Everyone deserves compassionate abortion care. Abortion saves lives. Abortion makes lives better. Abortion is a moral and social good. That's a pretty radical reframe from, you know, uh, Bill Clinton's, you know, it should be safe, legal, and rare, right? I mean, you could call it a radical reframe, or you could say, why did we ever separate abortion out of health care? Why did we allow the talking points from extremists in the movement who defined abortion incorrectly, who um, made people and had value judgments around abortion? And I think that Bill and Hillary Clinton and second wave feminists often did a disservice in talking about abortion because, you know, that has been the legacy that we've been left with. How do you defend a right if you can't say it? And and oftentimes I like to ask people to check in when they'll say things like, well, I'm pro-choice, but I'm not pro-abortion. I often say, what is it that makes you, you know, have this knee-jerk reaction to say that? What is it about abortion? If we believe it's moral, we, we believe the science on it. Um, we don't want to have judgment about it. Why can't we talk about it in a positive light? The second we and, and, and working with providers, I work with providers all the time, and I work with people who've had abortions and people who are escorting patients. And what they say to me, and myself who's had an abortion, what they say to me is when people put abortion into a space of judgment or a space of stigma and, and putting that um, sort of negative connotation on it, it makes them feel like bad people. It makes the doctors feel like the work they're doing is somehow dirty. And it makes people, and this is the most important part, 
it makes people who are um, who have needed support for accessing abortion or getting abortion, it makes them feel like they can't trust you to be a supportive person because you are putting caveats in judgment. Because there is no good abortion and there's no bad abortion. There's just the abortion you need. And we really need to be doing some of that reframing. And, and I would argue, let's not, let's not make it seem radical. Let's bring it back to a normalizing place. You know, it's sort of like in the landscape of what we talk about constantly. You know, we're called radicals if we if we don't want our planet to become scorched earth, if we want clean water, if we just simply want people to wear masks and get vaccinated. That language has become radical. To me, that's practical. You know, so let's talk about it in practical terms. Isn't the core debate here? And I and, and I think, you know, we have to take this this conversation head on, particularly because in large parts of the country, the evangelical movement, which was, by the way, pro-choice prior to the to 1980, the evangelical oh, yeah. movement has become the, the vanguard rather than the Catholic Church. They've become the vanguard of the anti-abortion movement. And it's become like one of the top three issues for Republicans all over the country is abortion. Is this question of, is a mass of cells inside a woman, at what point does that transition from being a potential human to being a human. And the Supreme Court in the, uh, not in Roe, uh, what was it, the, the one that followed? Uh, in, Casey? Yeah, in Casey, excuse me. You know, they came up with this, uh, you know, three trimester thing and said it becomes a human when it's viable, when it can live outside of Well, Ray, of that was Roe, that was Roe. Roe okay. Ro created this trimester system that was not consulting okay, I, no I science. That was it was judges who just, no, yeah. no, it was Roe. Okay. Casey gave us the, uh, the, the state's ability to curb access. I see. Okay. Well, in any case, yeah. the, the, the point was that they were saying, you know, from a scientific point of view, at least in our opinion, we're not talking about a human being until it, it is capable of living outside of mom. And prior to that, it is the potential for a human being, but it is, you know, a mass of growing cells. And on the other hand, you've got the religious folks who are saying, no, we believe, I mean, if you go with the Catholic dogma, that we believe that that became a human being at the moment that mom and dad decided that they were going to have sex. In other words, there shouldn't be a condom in the way. No, seriously. Right. And, no, and, I know. And, and then, you know, okay, and, and then you get the evangelical perspective, which is, no, it became a human being the moment that it was fertilized or it was implanted or, you know, uh, or the moment that there's some electrical activity that you could call a heartbeat at, at uh, six weeks. This seems to be like the core of the issue, and there is absolutely no consensus in America, particularly among religious people, about where that point is. Well, different religions believe in different things, right? And so, you know, you've laid out some Christian dogma, and, and the evangelicals actually believe that forms of birth control are actually abortion. Anything that prevents pregnancy, so an IUD, they'll call an abortifacient because it, it right. prevents the implantation of a fertilized egg, right? And so someone's religious beliefs, people have many religious beliefs. We don't create a society based on them if you have a society that is free. And so the medical consensus is definitely that there is no viability to a fetus up until 24 weeks. And then what happens is a lot of folks don't want to talk about the myriad of things that can develop in a pregnancy after 24 weeks right. where the fetus will no longer develop and have compatibility with life. Right. And so that's why people oftentimes have later abortion. And so we don't ever want to, it's, it's hard to argue with somebody who's going to say to you, my religious beliefs tell me that, you know, a, an embryo, Right, and they've, they've anthropomorphized that embryo. They've, they've established yeah. a personality for it, essentially. A hundred percent. I mean, and, they, and, like, and what's really been frustrating is because of the lack of, of reporting on this with experts and scientists and researchers and, and abortion providers in the media, those talking points get repeated. You know, the New York Times indulged this insane op-ed from somebody defending the Texas bill, saying it was a good first step. And this person literally said... Well, we all need to realize that at six weeks is when a fetus develops a jaw. And I'm like, maybe if you're Jay Leno, but like, that's just not true <laughs> at any level. No, it's, it's the size all. of a grain of rice and it has a tail at six weeks. A hundred percent. And so it's like, what is it that, and it goes back to saying abortion out loud um, and, and really talking about it, because unless we have these conversations, 
these misinformation is going to just dominate the conversation. And just like we are all trying to navigate this tsunami of conspiracy theories that we're trying to weed through, there are also abortion conspiracy theories promoted by a lot of these same people. You know, that you can reverse your abortion. Twelve states pass laws that have doctors having to tell their patients that if they choose to have an abortion in the middle of their medication abortion, they can reverse it because some crackpot has an unpeer-reviewed study that he tried loading up pregnant people with progesterone and their pregnancies and, and their abortion didn't complete. It's not based in any medical science, but now we have states passing laws that say doctors have to refer to it. You know, like you said, this, this six-week thing, this heartbeat, making people wait for what reason? You know, um, life is compatible, a fetus is compatible with life after 20 weeks. None of these things are true. And right. yet politicians are pushing them forth so, as Liz, though they are medically sound. Liz, we just have uh, 45 seconds left here before we hit a hard break. Tell us about Abortion Access Front, your organization. Uh, we are an advocacy organization that is working with physicians and people on the ground to help grow activist bases in all 50 states so that when you are, if we go in and do a show in your town, we invite the providers, the activists in that town to have a conversation with us on stage so that we grow activist bases and community, community activism can start there so people can fight these laws on a state level. Yeah. And the website is? aafront.org and come see my shows portland i want to see you in portland and san francisco <laughs> yeah so, so uh and this the show that you're going to be doing is not an abortion show it's a stand-up comedy right stand-up comedy show where i am just looking at the world we live in right now and taking it on because i think we all need to laugh and we all need a catharsis and it's nice to be in a room full of people there you go november 34th here at the siren theater in portland and in san francisco on november 6th liz winstead aafront.org and uh liz winstead on twitter liz thank uh, l-i-z-z winstead liz thanks so much for dropping by it's great great Tom, talking so to great you. to talk to you thank you back at you Gary in Alpharetta, Georgia. Hey, Gary, what's on your mind today? Hi, Tom. Thank you. I'm going to cut to the chase, if I may. Please. And I'm here to say, as a loyal Democrat, an FDR Democrat, the Democratic Party, for the most part, lacks direction. We lack toughness. And if we don't get tougher, like FDR did with his philosophy, I don't care what the circumstances are, the circumstances we have a call following, that... We're addicted. You know what we're addicted to? We're addicted to rewarding wealth. I, I'm speaking to the choir. I know I am. Me and you, in a lot of ways, are the choir in the background. And we are going to lose badly. And I say badly. And, and, and please, Democrats, prove me wrong. I want you to prove we're going to lose badly in 2022 and 2024 if we don't quickly change our direction. And put up a put up a message to the American people, like a vanilla. America's very vanilla. You know what I mean? Yeah. The public's yeah. very vanilla. You know, one one of the things that the Democrats are facing, one of the challenges that they're facing, is a media that is obsessed with Biden is failing stories, and and uh, you know, Biden, I don't think Biden is failing, and I think a lot of people would be very happy with what he's doing if it wasn't. I mean, I I, I have a monitor on here in the in the studio in the first hour of the show. Uh, John King's show on CNN. Uh, almost every story, it seemed, uh, you know, I'd glance over and check out what was going on during the breaks, and and it was constantly, oh my God, Joe Biden is failing, and oh my God, they can't do this, and oh my God, they can't do that. Not true. And and well, you know, I don't think it's true. I you know, <laughs> yes, no, Chris is Cinema and Joe Manchin have ever. screwed things up, but you know, yeah. And so I think it's that America's, this. I'm sorry. I think this it's narrative America's needs to be shattered. Challenge. We have to break the, the, the back of greed. Tell yeah. you, treat people in the ministry of government. If we can't break the back of we can't find a person that runs for office that inspires. We need a younger candidate, inspire, or we're going to get beat badly. I'm sorry. Yeah. Well, we'll see. We'll see. Time will tell, Gary. All thank right, you. Thanks. Thank you very much for the call. Liz in Los Angeles. Hey, Liz, what's up? 
Hi, I'm calling about the, the, your last guest on the Liz show Winstead, yeah. about birth control. Mm-hmm. And for all those people who don't believe in birth control or uh, abortion should be required. Uh, I, I worked, uh, I want to tell you a little bit about myself, worked in social services for a while. I was going to be a social worker and save the world. Mm-hmm. Five years of doing that, I got a job in the court system. And I ended up working in the biggest family long court in the mm-hmm. country. Mm-hmm. And after you observe people, I, I've gotten to the point where I believe people should be licensed before they're allowed to procreate. Because a lot of people don't know what the heck they're doing. Yeah. We don't support parents in this society, Liz. I mean, sadly, you know, we don't we don't teach parenting skills in high school. You can graduate from high school and not know how to change a diaper. That seems wrong. That's true. And if anybody who doesn't believe in abortion should go take a child from protective services that are uh, an unwanted child into the courses. Yeah. And look and, at yeah. Look at the damage that is done. Yeah, I'm with you. Liz, thank you. Thank you for the call. Thanks for listening to KBFK. Special thanks to Louise Hartman, Sean Taylor, Nate Atwell, Jamie Holly, Joyce the Hammer Nance, Nigel Peacock, Sue Nethercote, Patrick Hoyt, Geraldine Halbert, Ron Hartenbaum, Chase Sprouse, Nicholas Miller, Pat Sweeney, Jabberwocky, Jay LeBlanc, Connor Arroyo, and Carne Verde. All the folks who work on this program. And thank you to you for uh, participating with our program and spreading the good word and supporting our sponsors and our stations. Get out there, get active, tag your it. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com.